Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, extra special bonus episode. You might be hearing this a day early on Patreon and and free. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you can go to patreon.com slash Willosophy. Join up for as little as US dollar per month. We are on the way to $5,000. If we can get to $5,000 per month, we will release two new episodes per week. One will be a brand new episode with a brand new guest. And the second one will be a catch-up episode with the previous Willosophy guest. But this week, just as a bonus and just because I wanted to put this episode out to give them promotion at the right time. Here is a brand new episode with a brand new guest coming out later in the week. So there's an episode with Pete Murray early in the week. I recorded that a few months ago, but it's a really lovely chat. And if you're a fan of Pete Murray, the musician, I highly recommend that you check out that episode. But this one is with a fellow by the name of Broden Kelly, and he is from the Australian comedy musical group, Auntie Donna. Uh, if you don't know Auntie Donna, they have a brand new show on Netflix called Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun. That's as good a way as any to discover them. If you have never discovered Auntie Donna before, there will be plenty of people listening to this who are well across uh, all the stuff they have done on YouTube, uh, the worldwide following that they have for their sketches and their comedy and uh, could not be more proud of these dudes and the uh, international waves they are making and this brand new show that they have on Netflix. And I'm going to talk to Broden all about that, but also about a whole bunch of different things from his life as well. So we're not far away from that 5,000 mark on the Patreon page, which will mean two episodes per week. But this one, just a bit of a bonus episode to say thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast and mostly because... Uh, Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun is now out on Netflix and I wanted to get this up as ep- this episode uh, ep as quickly. That's, I wanted to say this episode up as quickly, but instead I said this episode ep as quickly. Uh, very New Zealand approach. I wanted to get this episode ep as quickly as I could uh, so that uh, people could find out about their show and watch it on Netflix. So, uh, all right, that's enough of an introduction. Uh, I hope you're all well. I hope that you're uh, safe wherever you are in the world. If you are a new listener to this podcast, maybe you're just a big Auntie Donna fan and you've never listened to the show before, there are heaps of other episodes uh, of Velocity, plenty with a bunch of Australian comedians, a bunch of international comedians, and a whole bunch of other people who are not comedians as well for you to check out. So please do a deep dive through uh, the old episodes and have a listen to them if you like the show. Uh, James Fosdyke does all the original art. Podcast Mike, Michael Liberale does all the production for me and makes sure this thing comes out regularly. So a uh, big shout out to those two dudes and I hope you enjoy this episode with Broden Kelly. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and very excited to have today's guest on the show. Uh, he, uh, with his team, have a brand new show coming to Netflix, which I'm sure we will talk about. But the podcast starts very traditionally. I ask the guest who they are. So who are you? Hi, Will. Uh, I'm Broden Kelly. I'm a member of comedy group Auntie Donna. Comedy group Auntie Donna. Let's start with comedy group That's Auntie Donna because the reason, I mean, it's nice to have you on regardless, but the particular sure. reason we're doing this interview when we're doing this interview is because Auntie Donna uh, have a Netflix series that starts when? When is it on Netflix? It comes out November 11 globally 
except in mainland China and North Korea and your North Koreas, your Chinas, those kind of places. But um, yes, everywhere, November 11. So hang on, so talk me through why it doesn't come out in North Korea and China. Is that because they don't have Netflix or they are just anti-auntie They've never been Donna. Neither of them have never been Donna and we've tried. (laughs) We've got as close as Hong Kong. Actually, one of the most confusing shows that Auntie Donna ever had to do was was a Hong Kong festival. And I had a good time, but... The reviews weren't great. The reviews weren't. It was a festival called Clock and Flap. <laughs> um, but it was a good time. Clock and Flap? Yeah, clock and Flap. It's so close to being a completely different festival. Yeah, absolutely. Like you went to the Cock and Just Flap Just 10% festival, away a- from a really magical time. So explain to people uh, who might not be familiar with Auntie Donna. Now, if you're a younger person listening to this, you know who Auntie Donna are. Like, everybody who watches videos on their phones has watched an Auntie Donna video. My friend Charlie Clawson, who people who listen to this show are very familiar with, the partner in my TOEFOP business, is a 100,000% Auntie Donna fan, always telling me about some funny Auntie Donna video that he's been watching recently. Loves your stuff. Um, tell people who might not be familiar with Auntie Donna what Auntie Donna is. Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, like, it pretty much is just a bunch of people who wanted to be really good actors um, who left drama school as 21-year-old world-changing theatre makers who tried to put on some interesting theatre. It didn't go very well for them. They saw that the town that they... Well, the city they grew up in had a comedy festival. They went... Well, people seem to want to go to this. Maybe we can do some comedy for a while and then trick people into thinking that we're, you know, of value and then we can get into the main stage MTC shows and then I can be Richard the Third. That really is what Auntie Donna is. And then everything after that is us, just us trying to get to that point and at some point lost interest in being a theatre performer and at some point went, no, I actually like writing the comedy and doing that. We, we do... We started off trying to be like a... um a live comedy sketch group uh, sketch group, and we wanted to go the journey of like Elena on Woodley or a Doug Anthony All-Stars. And, um, and at some point, we just realized that the people who were showing up to our shows were like finding us on our YouTube videos and, and, uh, and were pretty diehard. So we, we just kind of kept moving down that, that trajectory and we, we just started. We found that more and more people around the world knew who we are. We found that the more videos online we made, the bigger our audience grew. So we just became half touring, half pretty much YouTube and social media. And that up to this point, that's pretty much what we've been doing. And we found a way to make it our full-time jobs about four years in and we're eight years in now. What I love is so much of the comedy community is really just rejected actors. Like yes. it is, we're the reverse John West. It is the <laughs> actors that neither reject that make comedy the best. A hundred percent. Do you still have dreams and aspirations even though now you obviously are a full-time comedian you're doing auntie donna full-time it's very successful now is there still a part of you that is thinking 20 years from now sean mccarlough style you'll end up you know playing richard the (laughs) third yeah i'd love to see sean mccarlough's richard the third by the way it would be absolutely (laughs) but uh do you know what and this is probably just complete and utter ignorance from me but in my acting's very easy i've had a few chances to just go on shows and act 
and it's not a real job. It's very easy. Like the the the, the amount of work that goes into writing just an okay sketch show that tours around Australia. It's so much fucking work, Will. And all you have to do is literally set your alarm for five. That's all you have to do as an actor. Like. No one really learns their lines properly. It's you know, there's there's good actors out there, but it's an easy job. I would love that. Like, you get fed well, you get looked after. Yeah, acting's easy. I would love to do that. <laughs> uh, so, Auntie Donna is three people on stage, but Auntie Donna isn't just three people, right? I think this is this will be fascinating to people who yeah. may have some familiarity with what Auntie Donna is. But I'm interested in. The organisation itself. Explain to people what Auntie Donna is. Yeah, so very early on, we just kind of realised that we were, we, as the, a small group of us kind of just realised that we wanted to focus on the things that we were passionate about. We didn't want to be a group that had to go out and try and figure out how to do one thing instead of another thing. We, I was really passionate about riding and Mark and Zach were also really passionate about that. And... Uh, we, I had a friend who I went to high school with who was at the same time studying film and a guy who I went to you know high school and uni with, my best friend from high school, was passionate about music and one of the other guys was went to acting school but hated every moment of it, so started writing. And we just thought, where, you know, six heads is better than one. Um, if we all buy in now when none of us have any money and are willing to invest our time and effort into something then eventually maybe we'll get to a point where we can transcend the you know that time where no one's getting paid and get to a point where we're making really high quality stuff so we have internally just this mentality that we for a really long time we just bought in and didn't make any money for four or five years we we worked you know full-time or part-time jobs and then spent two or three days of the week doing this show and kind of accepted for a really long time that we weren't going to have weekends and we weren't going to have, we were going to miss birthday parties and friends parties and things like that. And um, just worked our ass off for a really long time uh, across the board. And um, yeah, so there's six of us. We have, yeah, film, music, writers and, uh, and, and the, yeah. And we, it's just the idea that everyone's, we're putting six amounts of energy into one thing, I guess. What I love about this, and I think is particularly resonant at the time that we're going through, where the arts have been incredibly devalued in the minds of people. The importance mm. of the arts went right down the rung of what people thought was important during these pandemic times, despite the fact that people were consuming art at record numbers during these Absolutely. times. There's never actually been a greater art drought what a time to be launching a show on netflix when everybody's watched everything else on netflix (laughs) it's like there are so many shows that i've watched at the moment just because oh thank god there's something new i don't have to watch seven series of old goggle box episodes in a row anymore there's actually a new show that i can watch but secondly the thing i really wanted to say was this those four years where you guys decided we're going to do this, you know, without payment in the hope that we will do it. When mm. anyone dismisses the arts as being some sort of, you know, well, you should have got a real job. Fuck you. Big capital F, big capital Y, fuck you. Because I don't see carpenters doing four years of unpaid work in no. the hope that one day somebody's going to let them build a table. I don't see that in other professions. And yet you guys were willing to put four years of your life on hold, work a regular job and then work full time on a job that you weren't getting paid for at all in the hope that one day you could 
build an idea, build a career, build something that would then, you know, make money and be, employ people and entertain people. The idea that that isn't valued in our society is the biggest load of horseshit that I've ever heard in my entire life. It's one of the things I say to a lot of young people who ask, you know, I've gotten to a point now where I get asked, <laughs> like, you know, how did you get to this position? Which is just absurd to me. But uh, the two things I usually say to like younger people who are looking to make, you know, any creative pursuit a career, the one thing I say is give yourself an amount of years of how long you're willing to give this without it giving you any return and then like add three more years to it potentially because <laughs> like I feel like every like big, every big sort of wave or big, you know, new opportunity has come maybe like when I've gone fucking right, absolutely I'm getting this opportunity. I should like, I wish I'd had it a year ago. It's it, you like... It's never, never for us at least. It hasn't been that you know the the movie story where you know the the at the end of the first act the big thing happens. And the other thing I always say is just be completely willing to look like a piece of shit to the people who love you for a while. That's just going to unfortunately be the case where your parents aren't going to be able to you know brag about you. Your partner's going to think you're you're a nonce, whatever. Like. That's just kind of what you've got to deal with. And if you've got that internal like acceptance that you're going to get somewhere, even if you're not, you kind of need it, I think. They are two of the best bits of advice I have ever heard. You have the wisdom of a hundred years of experience, my friend. Oh, I great. wish somebody had said both of those things to me when I started out because they are both 100% resonant. So tell me now about this idea that you're just days away, weeks away from the launch of a series that will be seen all over the yeah. world. Like you've worked so hard for all that time. You've done all that time without being recompensed for it. You've had obviously in between that time and now a great deal of success, you know, with Auntie Donna, you know, you know, like tens of millions of YouTube views and touring all over the world to your own audiences. Now, the capacity to go to another country and put on a show and the people aren't there because that it's a comedy show or it's a yeah. comedy night. They're there because they are fans of yours who've discovered this thing you've done in Australia all over the world. But now, I mean, Netflix is the headliner in regard to this. There isn't somewhere that once your Netflixing goes well that you aspire to get to the next level. This is the big time. This is the to AFL. Extent, yeah. This is the NRL. You know, people get to see what you've made. So what's that feeling like? I, I prefer it as the AFL than the NRL. just want to make that very clear. But, um, you know, it's the... <laughs> no, I... I uh... I um I'm shitting myself in to to the nth degree, Will. Like I'm fucking paralyzed with fear, to be honest. Like I um this has been cut. We we got the phone call from our US producer saying they want to make the show two years ago, and it's just taken that like it's just taken that long to finally happen. And with COVID and everything, it was a thing where if it had gone any longer, it would have killed it probably. It would have been, you know, called off. It was this thing that it had to take two years. But, and also up until last Wednesday, I haven't been able to talk about it. It's It's been completely and utterly secret. Shooting it, living in America, meeting all these cool people, you know, literally living one of the dreams. And, um, and now that it's like just, I, I had to take a bath at 1 p.m. last Wednesday when, when it came out and people started to talk about it because I just didn't have, I couldn't take it in. I couldn't, I didn't have the orifices to be able to receive it all. Um, 
but I'm I'm genuinely horrified. I've like I've been lucky. It's not like we're getting our. It's not like it's 1992 and we're getting our ABC show and we've been touring for ten years, and this is the first time anyone sees us. We've got a core fan base who like what we do, and we've also had the experience of knowing that particularly for what we do, but I think it's right with most creative things that not everyone's going to love it. Like what you just hope is that it means a lot to a small group of people. Like it's something that they really love. You hope that there's a wider group of people who really enjoy it and want to see more of it. And you also accept that there's going to be a portion who dislike it. And then there's going to be a portion who want you to die. And that's kind of the creative, that's the creative thing. So To an extent, I'm accepting that some people are going to hate it. I'm hoping that enough people really like it. Um, And I'm kind of excited to be the new thing again because that's something that we haven't been for a while. When we first sort of broke through on YouTube and online, it it was really cool for people to go, who is this new thing? But then that with that always comes the next round where it's, I like your old stuff better than your new stuff or you're not the hot new thing anymore. And um, like you said, like Netflix is a, goes out to 130 countries or something like that and gazillion people. And the idea of being new to people again is really exciting. But I'm so scared. I've never worked harder. On, to be put it all out on the table, Will, I've never worked harder on anything in my life. I've never invested more of myself. I've never shown more of myself. And it's the same with all the other guys. And it's fucking horrifying. But it's, it, you know, it means you're alive, which is great. But it's fucking scary. One other thing, I absolutely, I think scary is absolutely understandable. <laughs> like, this is what you've worked hard to get to, and now mm. you have the opportunity to see if you can, you know, step up to that next level. And I, I find it super exciting. And one of the things that I was so pleased to see was how much of the comedy community was also super excited on your behalf. Like, that must oh. be very pleasing to know that there's, you know, like sometimes you worry that your success will come with other people's jealousy attached to it. Whereas I saw when this was announced, just a massive outpouring of joy from the comedy community. I couldn't believe it. Actually. I I, I thought that some people would be excited. I genuinely accepted a bit of the, I expected a bit of the, Oh, okay, let's see how this goes. But literally just, you know, I was really like moved by it. It was almost like your 21st or your, or your, uh, you know, your wedding day, where it was just mountains of people saying nice things about. It. And we have a brilliant community of people. You kind of forget it with comedy, um, you know. And sometimes it can feel like it's a backstabby industry where everyone hates each other. But it was just really lovely to see that just mountains of people being so supportive. It was like, oh, if nothing else comes from it, it, was really lovely to see that. And it was exciting to see how many people in Australia want to see Australian comedy do well. It was awesome. One of the things that I was excited about talking to you about was this idea of community. So, like, obviously part of the comedy community, but I think you're a person who must understand the power of communities perhaps even more than, you know, someone who's just a regular part of the stand-up community because that community, in a way, mixes in together and, yeah, there's a bunch of people saying, who's his show, who's coming to see my show? And, like, while you might have your own individual fan bases, you literally are part of a community as in the three people on stage, the six people who are part of the team. That there, Like, there's a subset, the on-stage part of this community, then you've got the broader community of Auntie Donna. Then you've got the community of your audience because you have for a very long time been speaking directly to 
Auntie Donna fans online. They are the reason that you've got this opportunity in a way is this community of people who've already agreed, no, this is good, it has value. Yeah, it's a, it's there's this moment that came, I reckon, about three or four years in where where the the the, the audience shifted for us, where it went from every night you go out, and I'm curious to know if this is the case was the ever the case for you, where you'd go out every night and you'd feel like half the audience is on side half the audience don't know who you are and you're, you've got to win them over. So you build shows, you build an hour show to start with. Hi, I'm, we're Auntie Donna, this is what we do and win them over by the end of it. And then, and you'd, and you'd get more, you'd get more conflicting responses and reviews. But then about three or four years ago when our, when our community and our fan base got to a certain level, I, the, I, the, something tipped over and and people, our community was big enough that people went, "Oh, these guys are established," and 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 we were making the same comedy, the same bullshit <laughs> that we were the year before. But that amount of people saying "I love them" meant to the wider community that we'd been legitimized or that we were established at that point. And um, yeah, I think a lot of people out there just sort of follow what a lot of other people do, and like community and comedy communities and things like that are the reason that people get to where they get to. And it's our audience and that's one element of it. The other part of community I wanted to talk to is I've like, I've never felt lonely. I've never felt that thing with with uh, that sometimes I hear comedians say where they feel like they're isolated and separated. Whenever, I, whenever Auntie Donna does a show, for better or worse, you walk off stage and I have the other two guys there with you to talk about it and I can either blame them and say it's your fault that tonight was bad <laughs> never say that directly but I can say that went badly and it's you know my fault or their fault and when it's a good moment you share that with them as well so like it's um I, yeah I, I I secretly consider myself part of a theatre company to be honest a travelling <laughs> theatre company more than a comedian at times but I think that's true like yeah. and I think what a I, I, I admire that about you guys and I admire it about you know, Hamish and Andy and what they've created with the Radio Karate crew. Like, again, a lot of their friends working in various different roles behind the scenes, on screen, in different roles. Like, it feels to me like this is a next generational way of doing things. Maybe the only other example in Australia was the working dog guys, you know, back in yeah. the day. They yeah. really had, you know, a kind of community of people as well. But, I, yeah, I'm jealous of it. Absolutely, I'm jealous of it because that idea of... And it's kind of what we've tried to do a little bit with TOEFOB. You know, we've expanded yeah. out our world a little bit, but it feels like you guys have done it with, if we're going to tour the world, if we're going to do this thing, we might as well do it with a bunch of our mates. Then going to work's going to be like seeing our mates. We're going to have fun. You know, what a great way to set up your life. Yeah, I like, I loved wrestling when I was a kid and I loved the wrestling gangs. Like there was the Undertaker's Ministry and there was Degeneration X. And I think I've always just loved that mentality in my head. It's, it's not a gang, but it's like a your, your, your pals, exactly that, and you're going out and doing debauchery, or you're going out and doing, <laughs> um, you're going out and making little vignettes, comedy plays, uh, but um, it's it's a double edged sword as well. We'll like, um, I've uh, the transition because that was the that was the thing that I wanted to ask about yeah. next was like. They're all the positive sides of it, but what is the hardest stuff about it? Well, the, the, the layers within the group, like I have a different relationship with the, my two fellow performers in Zach and Mark than I do with the guys who are outside of it and write and direct as well. But we've seen, well, like I'm in multiple marriages uh, that are like, <laughs> that are, you know, the same as all the other ones, but I, I've, it's, it's gone. The relationship that I have with the two guys that I see literally every day 
is it's it started as friendship and pal and acquaintance and it's gone to very close friend and it's gone to best friend and then it's transitioned to family and then it's you know transitioned to like a wholehearted partner um for both of them and it's you know how many other mini little relationships there is and when i say brother and i say family i mean that in the complete sense of the word in that you see the the absolute best of people and you see what other people don't see in them you see their growth and how you know and how good a people they are and how brilliant and talented they are but then you also see that person at their absolute worst at their complete base self and um that's like so that's like that's what happens when you started you know when you go into business with someone which is essentially what we've done you see the real person um and that's like and I, and also within that i've changed they've been a big part of how I've changed over the last eight years as well as a human being. I'm now entirely defined in my life by the relationships and how I've worked with the people I work with every day in my comedy group. So how have you changed? Take me a little bit on that journey. What were you like when you started out and what are you like now? The the last two years for me have me has been me wrangling with the notion that I'm, I was an angry prick, like a real prick. I'm the angry one. And like, and how I, worked as a team member and and coming to terms with that and trying to be a better person so when we started i was the angry one who you know if an idea didn't go my way or i was insecure i would snap back and say fuck you or no that's wrong or and you know just out of complete insecurity and for me it's just been years and years of trying to come to terms with that and realize that that's not okay that's outdated bullshit and that it's not a good way to be as a creative person. I was like, it took a basket, an amateur basketball game two years ago for me to just go stop being a fucking prick. Um, where I was like playing an amateur, like a friend's basketball game and got so mad driving home that I was like, this is not a healthy way to be. And it's ruining your relationships and it's ruining the way you are with people. And like went to a therapist for the first time and realized how much of like how, how, self-sabotaging it is to to be in a place where you're whenever you feel insecure to be aggressive about it and it's a common thing for 20 year you know guys in their mid-20s to be like that but um I mean, I, fight or flight right like you exactly. one or the other and if you're dealing with if if people you can if you're a fight person and you're dealing with flight people or freeze people which is the third one i've discovered mm, um yeah then you can like you just you you feel like you win arguments but what you're really doing is just silencing another person and their and their opinion i don't think i actually knew that and that's a revelation i had to have is you know in my head probably for a time it's if you're coming into a conflict or you're you know a creative discussion where you have to sell your point of view my instinct was probably well i'll just yell until i win and and what i'm actually doing is stymieing any valuable discussion and um, in my very early years, uh, yeah, I was doing that badly. And as soon as I realized you, that, yeah. Where do you think that came from? Because I'm very, like, so not to the same extent, in, in to be honest, but yeah. I can recognize some of what you've said. Like in meetings, particularly early on in Gruen, because I think it came from a place of insecurity for me i'm sitting around a table with you know andrew denton and a bunch sure. of really you know serious heavy hitters and you know i'm experiencing this idea that 
my ideas aren't necessarily 100% in sync with their ideas and, you know, going, well, I need to be able to express my ideas. And I think there was a real insecurity that if I didn't say mine first, that they wouldn't be good enough ideas to compete with the other ideas that were already on the table. And one of the things that I've got to the point, I hope now when I have those meetings is hearing everybody else. And then if I still think that I have a stronger idea, being able to argue for why it's a stronger idea. But I think early on, a lot of it was like, well, I'm insecure that my idea isn't good enough. I need to say it first and get everyone on board and not let other people have their ideas. It's a fear that if you don't say it, it's not going to be heard. And I like it really needed to be, I have this thing in my head now where I just go, I don't have to speak now. I just have to tell myself that before this discussion moves on, I'm going to have my opinion heard. It does. I don't have to speak right now. And I don't even have to win this argument. I just have to voice very clearly and firmly. I really believe this and I think this will be an issue. But also in that time when you're, instead of going, I have something to say, in that time, hopefully I'm listening and hearing what the other person has to say, recalculating my opinion before... I'm putting it all out on the table. It, yeah, it's just give it five seconds, give it 10 seconds. Uh, understanding the joy of being able to stress test one of your opinions, I think is one of the great things in life. You know, yeah. the idea that you can, that, that people challenging your opinion or having a different opinion is a bad thing. It's, it's, it's a great thing. If you have an opinion, the best thing you can do is be in a room with a couple of people who either share it or don't share it so you can test it out to see if it's a good opinion or not. But it takes so long to fucking understand that. Yeah, and it takes a fair bit of vulnerability from yourself to be able to say, I might be wrong. I don't know. This is yeah. just how I'm feeling. <laughs> like, you, And coming to, you know, it's, uh, yeah. That idea of I might be wrong, because I think mm. that's been the greatest revelation in my life is that I spent so much time pretending like, cause I thought that everybody else had their shit together. And I thought, well, if I don't pretend that I have my shit together, everybody's going to be like, look at him. He doesn't have his shit together. And that moment when I could finally just say out loud, I've got no fucking idea. <laughs> the thing that I say in Gruen meetings all the time is this is our best guess. Yeah, we're all good at guessing. We've all got a lot of experience at guessing. But let's be honest, we're all guessing. And we'll get out there tonight and we'll find out if we guessed right. And if we didn't guess right, we'll guess something else next week. You know, like no one has a magic formula, particularly when it comes to comedy and particularly if you're working in a collaboration with six people. There is sometimes there is no right or wrong answer. It will just be a difference of opinion. Our creative process of writing shows started with rehearse as much as possible in a, in a private locked door room and then at one day show it to people and that, and that was opening night. And that was the end of it. Um, and then we moved to something which I know that you do a lot more is we now, the, our creative process is just is week after week of debasing ourselves in front of people, um, you know, which is literally we write sketches all week, get up on a Friday night to a free audience who is a mailing list of Danny Boy or someone and um, and uh, and then literally do stuff for them, you know, find yourself at 9 o'clock at night going, that couldn't have gone worse, but I have all this information and data now. Like it's just constant, constant deflating of the ego until you get to a place where you feel like you have something. But if you try and if you, you know, you tense up and muscle up and say, this is what we think you're not getting all the data. You, you, you'll lose, you know, it's science really, isn't it? Like it's just getting more and more, you know, more and more experiments. I'm very interested in the idea of 
I've got one more Auntie Donna question and then I just actually want to talk about you if that is okay. No, so please. I, I'm... And it's one of the things that... Because I love comedy. I got into comedy because I loved comedy and because I thought it'd be cool to hang out with comedians and then I was lucky enough to actually get to be a comedian and hang out with more comedians. And But I love the newer comics as much as, you know, I love the people who came before me and, you know, my colleagues. I just love comedy. And what I love about the emerging generation of Australian comedians is that it seems so much more diverse in every way, both the comedy and the faces and the people that we're seeing. And I think that's an incredibly wonderful, wonderful thing. Would an act like Auntie Donna exist if your only market was Australia? Or does the fact that it's been able to be international mean that you get to do, like, I I guess the question I'm asking is you said before, you know, like you don't need heaps of every country to love it. You just no. need, you know, if you get 1% or 2% of people in every one of those countries, those 130 countries that Netflix goes to, that's your career made for the rest of your fucking life. That's enough people yeah. to keep doing comedy forever, right? But if you needed 100%. to get all those people in Australia only as yeah. your market, does Auntie Donna get to exist? We prob- Probably not to the extent we do. Like in our early days, I think we probably just moved to a more broad uh, we find like, you know, we, we have to, we find a way to work in a different way. I think it's that it's the Watchmen comic book series where one thing happens and then we career off in a completely different trajectory. Um, I think we probably, we probably forced to be, you know, we're, there's probably an Auntie Donna news, uh, topics show where we, we, uh, where we lampoon, <laughs> lampoon little Johnny Howard every week. Uh, but, um, yeah, like th- th- I think we're probably like probably not. I, there was definitely a point like four years in where it was getting to a point where we were losing the support of institutions that we like. Here's the young guys, and there was definitely a moment where we've we've definitely felt like we were on a raft out on our own and needed to either sink or swim. Uh, we and we had YouTube there. We 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 found our audience. We had our voice found, and we were able to sort of keep going. And uh, and I I yeah, I don't think we do. To be honest, I think we either fall apart and go off and do other careers. But the definitely the the way that we've been able to find people in England and here and America and Canada and everywhere else and be able to talk to them and have them as our audience. Yeah, I think it definitely warrants exactly what you're talking about diversity of voice is, is that how many podcasts are out there that have just maybe 10, 20,000 people who love the shit out of it and w- want to hear you talk about it every week um, in our office in Melbourne in stupid old studios where there's, you know, mountains of comedians every day. They fans rock up to the front door every day from all over the world, just wanting to see Alistair Tremblay Birchall and Andy and Andy Matthews. Yes, 100%. And uh, hopefully it means good things. It means diversity of comedic voice and it means diversity of comedic style. Um, and we could, yeah. And I think there's still room for the traditional comedy and, in, and things like that. But diversity only helps in every, in every way. So now you personally, because um, we've touched on it a little bit already, but uh, I ask people on this show if they have a philosophy of any kind, a life philosophy of any kind. Do you have one? I, I have a few that I kind of go to. When Conan was cancelled off The Tonight Show in 2007, I think, or 2008, 
he's on his last show as he was getting smashed everywhere. He he did this big quote where he said, "If you work really hard and are kind, amazing things will happen." And he said, and he just sort of kept drilling home, "Trust me, trust me, trust me," that it's true, and I, that kind of stuck in my head. And even though at the time I'm dealing with being angry and being a prick, it was always in the back of my head of just be nice to people and make sure that everyone around you is happy and, and in an environment that's good. Um, and working really hard, working really hard is the thing for me. And as a person who gets anxious, it's probably been, a, once again, a double-edged sword is that I'll just jump to let's do everything we possibly can. Like this Netflix thing, for example, of working hard, I've kind of made my mentality for this show that we're not going to die wondering on this show. I'm going to, and we are going to do everything we possibly can to make people watch this show. And if we get to January next year and no one watched it, at least I can say I did everything. And that's the case for every step of the process for me. I've, the guys have talked about me as the member of the group who uh, is always looking forward to the way to innovate and grow and do the next step. Um, I was the one. I, I was really hard on pushing into America and 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 all of kind of those kind of things. So that working hard and finding the next thing has always been a really really big thing for me. Uh, pushing into America is an interesting one. I spent ten of the most joyous years of my life living part time over there. You know, touring yeah. around that country, like doing comedy to people over there. What was it about America that was fascinating to you? I don't know if it's fascinating, but I literally, the way I said to the guys, as I said, if 1% of Australia likes us and 1% of America likes us, (laughs) uh, we'll make more money. Um, uh, That was one one element of it. Um, But then like, I also, uh, this is completely, uh, we went to Edinburgh, we went to England and found a really diehard audience there. But we also found that it was, we kind of found it was a bit of like closed door mentality. A lot of great comedians go over there and have, and have made and staked their claim over there. But um, we kind of just found that with, it was there wasn't an openness to what we were doing. And in America, it was exactly the opposite. We, we, we just thought, let's try and get over there and, and see if people like us. And we did one show there and sold it out. And the crowd gave us a standing ovation. People positive and exciting. Um, uh, that was three or four years ago now, so it might be a different case now. But uh, I think just there's see- a cultural context that you're talking yeah. about, though, that you, because what you do has an energy of, like, it, it, that plays on, like, an Australian, particularly Australian machismo. Even though, you know, yeah. that might not necessarily be the characters are there, there is an energy to your performance and the way you guys present and what it is that yeah. you do that I think the British have a very different context for than the Americans do. You know, the British can That's sometimes right. see that as being vulgar or you know, it's often when you guys are playing with that form or being satirical with that form, I think that can be lost on the British and they can misinterpret that, whereas the Americans have an openness to seeing that, maybe because they have less of an understanding of, you know, they don't, they don't know as many Australians and they don't have the same connotations to it that the Brits do. But I think there is a different cultural context to it. No, I think you're completely right. Like, um, I think, and I think, I think Americans just love giving standing ovations. They love feeling like they're having That's a great time. <laughs> they really love it. I, to the point where when we tour over there, I get shitty if they don't stand up at the end. And I, you're like, you should stand up now. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, I they just. A, I, I did a week in Denver once where I got more standing ovations than I'd had in six years of doing stand-up <laughs> comedy. <laughs> I was like, you guys are great, but I can't live here. 
Uh, yeah, no. I saw you. One of my favorite shows that I've ever seen was you in a in a sixty seats at JFL. Not that it's America. It's North America in Montreal, just doing just for laughs. Um, that's one of my favorite experiences ever because you're you know you are you are. I, I said to our tour manager, and I'm sorry to say, I said you're the Seinfeld of Australia. Um, and you may not think that, but, but like, it was incredible to see you in this small room, just absolutely smashing it out. It's one of my favorite, favorite performances ever. Um, yeah, it was cool. Sorry to just say that. Uh, but that um, was fun you know, to see you guys in that, in that format though. Cause I saw you guys also at that just for laughs in Montreal. And again, oh, yeah, right. not an American festival, but like, you know, a lot of Americans there and obviously, you know, being mm. a Canadian festival. So yeah. Talk to me about that cultural context. It's I think it's I think it's that they they like energy they like fun they there's a a mentality of being from a different place is really fun and interesting to a lot of people uh-huh. uh yeah I I think yeah we we I, we seem to over there just find people who are really really passionate about comedy from all over the world and and like love other shows from Australia that when you talk about community again we 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 have a handful of different little tiny communities that we connect with in America who are our friends as well. Um, and they're not, you know, tonight shows and things like that, but there is definitely a subculture of little communities that are, you know, pop up or not like with things like Twitch and things like, you know, obviously YouTube and places like that. People are definitely finding really niche areas and, yeah. So you spoke about you being the innovator, the one who's interested in, you know, what the next step is, what, you know, pushing into the next area. Are you like that externally to Auntie Donna? Are you a person who's always looking for the next update, the next, you know, place to put things? Are you still across the newest technology when another one comes along? Are you still into the thing that the next generation is into? It's really weird. Like I actually find myself struggling to be driven with anything outside of Donna now. And it's and it's like something I'm wrangling with myself at the moment where I, I, I when I wake up, all I'm passionate about is thinking about what's Donna going to do today? How can I help build Donna? And when I think about like even my personal career or after I think about, um, you know, anything else, I've just got no interest. I feel like I've, and it's, you know, it's, I don't know if it's a good way to be, but I feel like I've found my expertise in an area and I just want to keep building and building and building upon that. It's a, it's a strange one for me. Um, yeah. So the work-life balance is an interesting one because I mean, clearly you're at, how old are you? Like 30? 31. Or 31. Yeah. So perfect time to be, you know, have an opportunity to throw yourself wholeheartedly into your work, you know, as you get older, you know, your life becomes more complex and more complicated, but it's a good age to have that opportunity to do that. But how do you think about work-life balance? Because when something like this is so all-encompassing and rewards you for putting that energy into it, so you can justify in your own mind, it's good that I'm putting all this energy into this thing. Uh, how do you make sure that you don't lose a sense of who you are outside Auntie Donna? Yeah, that and that's been something I've been wrangling with over the years. I, I'm in a very typical male way. I've I've just become I find the things that I'm obsessed with outside of it and just try and completely compartmentalize those things away from it. I love football. I love sport. Every sport, I'll get up in the middle of the night to watch sport. Um, and I, I think it's actively because it's so different to what I do. And when you, I don't know if you feel this way, but when I, when you, when I made comedy my job, I, 
almost made it impossible to be able to watch it and enjoy it or like not even once i turn it on i love it but i can't turn it on like i can't hover over a stand-up special and click on because i know that i'm going to be thinking it's going to make me think about work and and it was like that's something you kind of have to you have to grieve the loss of that thing that that retreat um so i found it's you know i'm very close with my family i'm very close with you know, you know, my partner and, and her family and playing sport and being active and things like that. But um, yeah, I, I try and really separate the two things, definitely. It's interesting to me what you say about comedy because, yes, of course. I think that's why that I enjoyed your show so much when I saw it, but also when I see people who don't do what I do, I, I tend to enjoy that style of comedy. I'm not sure if I were a comedy fan that I would be going to see me. I much prefer going to see people who aren't like me, you know, because I can enjoy it as a comedic experience. Whereas if I see someone who's in a similar world, you know, a bloke standing in front of a microphone, you know, telling jokes, I do, despite how much I'm enjoying it, sit there going, ah, I see what he's doing or I know what he's going to do next. So yeah, I thought it would probably go there. That'll come back. You know, like, and I'm not trying to do that. It's not like I'm some asshole. I want to enjoy the performance, but my brain just naturally goes into that mode. But I can sit and watch what you do or watch what, you know, Flight of the Concords do or the Mighty Boosh do or like, you know, Paul F. Tompkins does. These sort of people... I feel relaxed because I'm like, I don't know where this is going. I don't understand what, you know, like what this is going to be. It's different style of comedy to me. Yeah, it's it's exactly the the, the opposite for me. I love going to see every stand-up show that I possibly can at Comedy Festival. It's one of the most awesome times of the year, just seeing everyone. And uh, yeah, no, it's um, I do enjoy that if I'm being honest. Yeah. Okay, so sport. Talk to me about the importance of sport. Were you a because you're like a you know a fit guy and a like tall guy? How tall are you? Um, six foot two, hundred eighty five centimeters. Just a boring height, really. Not as tall as you, yeah. I don't think. Well, not quite. I'm only six <laughs> two and a half. I think I'm like hundred eighty nine or eighty seven or so. I don't know. I yeah, don't right. know, but we're similar <laughs> heights. I slouch. We're probably about the same height. So um, <laughs> was there any sporting aspirations in your childhood? What was your childhood? I don't think I actually know much about where you grew up. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what you were like as a kid. I had one of them comedy grow- growing up where my dad was a businessman who moved around a lot. So I went to uh-huh. six different primary schools and I actively uh-huh. remember going, how do I change up who I am to win these kids over. I remember that very, very vividly over and over and over again and becoming the next, you know, being Jim Carrey at one school and then going, I remember that very vividly. Um, but very just boring suburban, suburban growing up. I, um, I, uh, I, I played football and was awful at it. Do you know what's interesting? Like I, um, when I was, I, I, I came up in a culture of everyone, you know, all the everyone loving footy and and being a sport family, and you go and play for the footy club, and you're good at that. And hearing stuff like footy clubs are the best place to be because they're your community and they're there for you, and just having absolutely not that experience of it, and being and finding that like theatre, that the the musical at school was that mentality where you were welcome and everything was that, but um. As soon as I was able to separate it and realize that I wasn't good at sport was when I was able to properly enjoy it. I think a lot of young people get to about 20 and then once they accept they're not good at sport, then they become obsessed with the other the other element of sport, which is just talking about it incessantly and listening to talkback <laughs> radio and commenting and texting 
<laughs> sport phone radio lines. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I was never particularly good at them. Uh, uh, but luckily enough, I could uh, I could crack jokes and uh, and and get around it in another way. Well, so you talked about the theatre groups at school then being a bit of a refuge for you. Can you remember the first time you were on stage? Yeah, I can very vividly in year nine. I was one of those people in year seven. I uh, desperately wanted to audition for the musical, but was crippled with fear. So then I actively sought out the the boys in my year level who were auditioning for them and befriended them in the knowing that in a year's time I could ask them if we could audition together. That's so I had like that yeah, is forward so, thinking. You are the forward thinker in the group. That's yeah. a good one one year plan. How will how will I get to touring America eventually? How do I how do I get to a Netflix <laughs> show from here? <laughs> how do I get to a six part series? Um but yeah so I remember the first show a little shop of horrors at Viewbank College and um just it was one of those moments where you, you, and and I hope most people get to experience this in their life where they find the one thing that they just love more than anything else they find their community my acting teacher at uni used to say finding your tribe and you're able to you know in, and and being able to immerse yourself in that once i did that my life i remember changing i remember being a real sad little kid who couldn't wasn't good at anything and i remember very vividly the moment that just the music teacher at the school came up to me and said, you're, you're quite good at this and you should consider doing more of it. I remember just like switching a flick, like switching a, a switch in my brain and making me think that like, I, I can't do anything else from now on. Um, yeah. Very, very lovely, lovely memories of that time. So now you're, you know, 31, you said 31, um, 31, you know, you probably, this is your job now. Like, have you had that conversation with yourself? Like, where you just like, if you're going, okay, I guess this is, this is what I'm doing with my life. It, it Yeah. There was a, I remember like three or four years in, there was uh Centrelink were on the, was around. Mm. I was getting Centrelink and having to do the job interviews. And um, I was still in that mind frame where I was like, well, maybe I'll find something else and I'll go off and do that eventually. Maybe there's another journey for me. And um, I had to go do a job interview at a cheese factory. Um, and I was like, I can see myself being a cheese maker. And I do a bit of comedy on the side, but then I wake up at five and I milk the cows and I cut the, I cut the, the, the brie. And I was like, I can see this happening. And then uh, I got to the job and I had to, I, I literally, they asked me, I had to wrap this cheese and tie it in a knot. And I just couldn't do it i i didn't have the capability I, I i think i had to they're like can you do 50 of these today and i don't think i finished one and i and the guy just gave me 50 bucks and said just go mate it's fine you can leave now <laughs> and i remember sitting in my car as like at like 23 24 or however the old i was and just going i actually can't do anything else yeah. like i actually i actually suck at everything i'm i'm not like there was one thing that anyone's ever said i'm good at I have to keep doing that and find a way to make it my job. Otherwise, I'm stuffed. I'm absolutely stuffed. And um, I remember like thinking, all right, that being a moment where I had to really figure out how I was going to make this my career. And I think within a year or two, it was our, our, my job. I think I um, think that's a big thing. I, I tell this story a lot. And look, Roseanne has some unpopular opinions these days, but I saw her on an episode of Oprah back when I was starting doing comedy. And she said, 
don't have a fallback position because you'll fall back on it. And I thought yeah. it was great advice, but I didn't really understand it until I was about 15 years into my comedy career where I was like, sometimes the only thing that keeps me being a comedian is lack of other viable options. I don't think there's yeah. anything else that I could do. When I Yeah, when I heard people say that, I'm like, it's a really magical notion that you just are incapable. <laughs> it's really beautiful. But it literally is. I can't no. fucking work yeah. a drill. I, the, if you look behind me, there's... I've been trying to hang up pictures on my wall for a whole week and at four o'clock every night I just hear smash and they fall down again. I'm incapable of using my hands for anything valuable. All I can do is go on stage and go, what the bloody hell is going on? Like, do it. I know how to be the straight guy in a comedy group and that's got me to a point and hopefully at some point I'll just be put into retirement. You know, I can go on ABC and to a morning show or talk to Sammy J and that'll be like, I could do that as well. Maybe you, you say the straight guy in a comedy group, but you're not the straight guy in the comedy group. You sometimes, you know, play a straight yeah. guy in some of it, but the dynamics of Auntie Donna are ever changing. It is not like a traditional comedy group where, you know, here's the, like, I mean, Doug Anthony all stars, you know, part of the reason I got into comedy could not have loved them more, but it's a very simple dynamic, you know. The, you know, Tim is the 100%. sort of good-looking one, and Paul's the sort of you know angry, you know, kind of sexy, dirty one. And you know, Richard would play guitar, and they would make jokes about him being dumb, despite the fact that he's clearly a fucking genius and has gone on <laughs> that in the rest of his career. But that was the internal dynamic, and most of what they did on stage was played through that internal dynamic. But there is a switching dynamic in personalities yeah. within Auntie Donna, right? It's this thing for years and years and years. And every time we tried to make a TV pitch or had to ever try and verbalize what we are, it would kill the magic of it. So we'd have to sit down all the time and go, well, you do this and you're afraid of this. And that drives you to point X, which is the magic because that conflicts with Zach's X. And like, you know, and you start getting to a beautiful mind of, but like, and that can kill the magic of it. If you're a writer writing The Office or Parks and Rec or something, that can be quite valuable because you're seeing an ensemble of people. But what we really are, all we're doing is we're a couple of mates being fun. We're your friends. And we have an overall mantra as a group of whatever's funniest. So we come up with funny things and then we express them. That's pretty much all it is. And... Uh, nothing else is above that. We're not making any political message. We're not trying to say one thing apart from isn't this thing funny and this is what we think is funny. Uh, and yeah, and, and that is literally, literally it. Um, any, you know, and people draw, for people trying to understand why they find something funny will often draw, you know, meaning from something and say, well, clearly this dynamic that you're built, you've built here is saying this. And it truly is just us going, in a moment, I thought this was funny. Here it is. Um, yeah. And and with it, so for years and years, when we were developing TV pitches for places, we'd be in this position where we'd have to try and sell that or we'd be forced into, into a position where we had to write that in that way, which is so counter to our instinct. When we went to Netflix and pitched the show, we went, this is who we are. Um, it's us in a house. and there, And any question about why are you there, or who are you? Who are you being here? And what are you saying? We would just say nothing. We're not. We've got. It's just us, and we're doing. And we're doing just when we're fucking around. And anytime anyone was like, "Well, who's the lead?" or "What do you love?" That nothing. This Broden loves nothing. Broden 
is <laughs> Broden loves being silly. That's it. Um, we've and and that as soon as we had the confidence to be able to say that and know what we would and, and say we know what this works. We know what we're talking about. That was actually the that was what allowed us to do. That's yeah. Once we accepted that we don't have a, a method. Oh, but this is overly simplistic. But I often think it's not the artist's job to know what the audience is going to get out of something. No. You know, like you can have an intention for what it is that you're trying to create, but that does not mean that, like I've listened to songs where I'm sure that I've got meaning out of those songs that wasn't the intentional meaning yeah, of the 100%. person who wrote that song. And it does not make that song any less meaningful because I took a different meaning out of it. So this idea that you somehow know as the person who makes the thing, how those who consume the thing will enjoy the thing and why they'll enjoy the thing is actually a ridiculous way to look at it, I think. Yeah, no, and it's not necessarily that you're not doing that either. You're just putting something out there as a point of discussion for people. Often our videos, once they go online, will go up on Reddit and a community starts talking about it. We did a sketch a year or two ago where it was about a teacher holding back students at lunch and it was saying nothing but that in that, you know, Everyone had a sports teacher who would stand there at at twelve thirty eight and go, "It's your lunchtime, guys," and you know, and and say, you know, you guys can decide how you want to behave today, and and let that affect your, you know, just talk shit to you, um, and that's all the sketch is saying. But it started this thesis of angry people who just left high school saying they're actually dictators and they're saying this about this and saying this about that. <laughs> And it's fine if you draw that, but it's yeah. it's you know not our job to to say we're saying that. We we have a very active point of saying that we have no political message, which in itself is a political message, and that we feel that we should be a place where people can just go and have a break and have a and have a laugh, and that's really important. Um, that is literally all that we're actually saying. And yet, sometimes when people say mm. that that what they are actually saying is a complete cop out for their racism or their sexism or their homophobia. Mm. Like often when people say, you know, we're not political. In fact, we, you know, it's, it's actually saying come to this place and you can laugh at all the things that you're not allowed to laugh yes, at anywhere yes. else in, in the world. But that's not no, what no, Auntie no. Donna yeah. is like at all. So how do you, you know, yeah. judge what makes the cut? In we, that um, we, uh, f- when we started, I didn't even think that we were going to be a group of white boys, white men doing something. It never even crossed my mind, which is bad. And I feel bad about that now. Like, And it's put me in a position where my career is a bunch of cis white males doing comedy. But what that's done is build an audience of young me's and young Zach's and young Mark's. Young men, for the most part, is our audience. And... um we have a hu- we feel a huge responsibility in that so we make a point to never well firstly to bring in people of you know as many diverse people as we possibly can into our work who we find funny and are good but also we have we make a real point to say we never say grubby shit we never say we never say stuff that we think is politically fucked or is is uh sexist or misogynist we have a real point to literally be apolitical we, we we preach within ourselves positivity we preach niceness for the most part and any yeah we're never punching down we make a real point of that it's it's very true i'm glad you brought that up uh because yeah i think often you what you uh, people use that 
people use that position of I'm not being political as a way to be, yeah, exactly what you're saying. I, you know, I should be able to say whatever I want. We feel a huge responsibility with what we say and what we don't say. Um, I could talk to you for a long time, but uh, as you well know, um, this is in a day of, unfortunately, a whole bunch of press and meetings for me also. Yeah, no. Um, so we've only got about 10 minutes, but I've got a few standard questions that I like to ask people, Please. if that's okay. So firstly, um, what do you think happens when you die? I think that's it. I had a, um, my grandfather passed away last year and I had to, I was spent the whole year in therapy dealing with that because I was the first person close to me to really mm-hmm. pass away. And, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's it sadly. Uh, but you know, it's what everyone else says as well, I think is very fair. And what I've heard many times on this podcast is you, you, uh, you're in the memories of the people you love. I don't really care about a legacy. I think that's, um, it's not important to me. Uh, but yeah, I think that's it. When people speak about you behind your back, what do you hope they say? Not what do they say? Maybe they're the same thing, hopefully, <laughs> but what would you hope they say? Uh, I would hope they say, uh, what I expect and hope they say is driven, but also like, but and frank and honest and open, probably. <laughs> Uh, frank and honest and open is an interesting one to me because frank and honest and open obviously can not always be appreciated by everybody. Sure. And I think that I'm probably not. I can. I have the capacity to be frank and honest and open, but I think that a lot of the time for other people's protection, much like a you know karate black belt who's not allowed to get into pub fights, I feel my power of pointing out people's you know flaws and being frank is probably yeah. a little bit too strong to just use recreationally yeah um how is that accepted by other people your frankness well, it depends on the on the deafness of touch in which i you know am open that's <laughs> what that's what the challenge for me over the years has been going you know how how can i say this the nicest way how can i not make this a battle where i'm being where i'm just saying something for the sake of it where am i why am i actually saying this and why am i being productive so i would hope that um you know, a valued opinion, I guess, but also, and fair, I guess. Fairness has come up a bit, I think. It's been a bit of a theme of this show today. Um, Auntie Donna's not political, but do you personally have, you know, political interests? Are there things that you're passionate about? You know, um, a topic that comes up a lot on this, you know, show, and I think it's always worth mentioning is Australia's relationship with, you know, the Indigenous people, the First Peoples of this country who had their land taken from them and sovereignty was never ceded like are you uh outside of auntie donna are you a person that is interested in things more political i think uh, yeah most of the internal discussions at auntie donna to be completely honest are just the most like we, we are incredibly political all of us and are often trying to in you know in try and help in any ways we can the the, the I'm hugely um, upset at this at Australia's relationship with its First Nations people. Um, incredibly upset about the position of the Great Barrier Reef and climate change, the state of world politics at the moment, and the way that social media has been so valuable to us, but at the same time is literally destroying democracy in most democratic countries. Um, and it's a daily it's a daily battle and the main thing I come back to always is it's more and more important to be able to make funny things because literally where things are getting worse and worse. <laughs> um, so yes, I, we're, we're, we have huge, we're all politically completely similarly minded, but um, 
We are, yeah, I'm quite politically engaged. I have the Guardian notifications on my phone on, let's put it that way. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, that's 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 definitely, I locked you in. Uh, I don't want to turn this into a political podcast, mate. Can't be a Noam Chomsky over here. So we've talked a little bit about strengths and weaknesses. Outside the ones we've already talked about, you know, your determination, your passion, these sort of things. Um, what? I, give me another example of a strength and weakness you recognise in yourself. I think... I am. I think I'm loyal. I think I'm a loyal person. I think I'm a. I'm a. I'm, I think I'm a good friend. I think I. Uh, if I think I'm a good friend, and um, and I think I will. I think I'm helpful to people. I think I. I if if I'm your friend, I'll I'll help. I'll be do anything to help you, and if you need my help, yeah, I value friendship quite a lot, and I value the people around me quite a lot. What about the flip side of that coin then? What's a, a weakness that hasn't been identified already in this show? Yeah, it all stems off being an angry prick. Um, <laughs> I've got it can short- be small. I'm I'm very happy with yeah. a, like a you know a, around the house you know thing that you don't yeah. do or something I, like I, that. I broke my favorite mug watching Melbourne play well, and I'm upset. Like <laughs> like I'm still working. I'm still working on that trigger of like watching a football team that literally has no importance in my life. Literally means nothing and how much that ruins my life. How many times I've driven back from the MCG or you know, I'm sitting on the couch and I'm mad about that and that that has a hold on me. I would love to release myself from that. Um, yeah. It's important because you choose to think that it's important. That's the reason. And I think that that is a good thing. It's a gamble, isn't it? You put It's literally just emotional gambling. Yeah. But, you know, the fact that you get suckered in so much that you care about a thing that you don't actually need to care about. It's just a game they play with a ball to entertain people, but it just can and, absolutely destroy you. And as a Melbourne supporter, I'm losing more and more. Like, I used to be able to look to people like you and say, you know, the Bulldogs, you know, they, they're, well, they're as bad as us. And now, literally, it's us. We're the lo- like, yeah, anyway. But um, it's getting lonely out here. Uh, okay, we're nearly done. Uh, I have a magic wand mm. and I can give you any skill in the world. You don't have to yeah. do your 10,000 hours. You just immediately have this skill. It can be interpreted as anything. What skill would you love to have? I think about this a lot when I'm listening to this podcast. It's very simple. Uh, I just want to be LeBron James good at basketball, but only in mm. amateur games. So I can show up to like any, you know, like a Tuesday <laughs> night with, you know, the, you know, with the 40 year olds. And I just smash them every time. And I don't have to be, you know, anywhere else. I never have to make it. I don't have to get to the NBL or anything like that. I can just show up and just kick everyone's ass and then get in my Hyundai and drive home. That would be... I mean, I love the idea you've overshot so much, though, that you have to be LeBron James good to dominate at that level. You yeah. could be the yeah. worst player in the NBA good and dominate at that level. That's but, right. No, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. No, I want to be look like just like we're to a point where people are looking around and seeing if they're like being pranked or something. Like how good this guy has scored 80 points in a Tuesday night Melbourne Sports and Aquatic Centre game. Um, that would be I think about that almost daily, to be honest, Will. <laughs> that would be great. Are you optimistic that we will be a better civilization coming out of the COVID experience, or do you think that we're going to be worse off? I think there'll be benefits, but I think uh, some big changes have to. I think we're COVID aside. I think we're in a in a very bad trajectory. 
speaking frankly um, with a lot of Sounds things. Sounds like a I- guy's got the Guardian notifications. <laughs> Mate, I've got no limit on notifications as well. I can get 10 in a day. It's crazy. Um, but I think like I know personally as a business, like running a small business, um, I, like I'm so excited by Zoom um, and the ability to be able to stay home and work from home. I think I'm legitimately excited by that. Uh as a comedian who tours, I miss it so, so desperately, and I'm sure you do too. Um, I'm just so excited to be able to do that again. I've like we've lost a big, I've lost a big chunk of my life, like mm. that I really, really, really miss, and I miss seeing people and performing and doing what I'm good at. Um, so I guess it will improve in that sense. Have you done a show? Uh, have you? When was the last time you did a live show? Oh, like well, before, like that's the thing because we were making the Netflix show. We didn't, we didn't do a oh. comedy festival. I've we've literally not made a new show in like two three years. We had a we had a big meeting a couple of week couple of weeks ago planning going forward, and um, there was a comedian who uh, really liked us, um, who I referenced, Tom Walker. Apparently, he used to have a picture of us on his walls in a you know a mind map about people that you look up to and who you who inspire your performance and he had us on his wall and um i started to cry because i i just watched his special and he was he's just one of the most brilliant performers yeah on the planet and i just feel like we're not at that level anymore because we're i i think like particularly what we do performance is a muscle that you train and you get better at and you it's a craft it's an art form and we've just not been able to do it for so long with the Netflix show, and then also with this. And I feel like I hope that we can get back to a place where we're where we're good again. And I'm just miss doing it so much. Uh, final question: I have a time machine. You can go to anywhere in the future, anywhere in the past. You can you know visit yourself. You can change mm. something about your life. It's it's pretty much all bets are off, other than. I need the machine back. It's a one-way trip, and you don't have to kill Hitler unless you have a particular passion for that. Yeah, I I, I uh. I don't know why, but when I was 14, I was obsessed with Ned Kelly and I'd love to go. <laughs> it's an, <laughs> I'd like to just go to the, his last stand and watch that and just see that occur because I think that would be incredible just to go and watch uh, Ned Kelly and the police fight it out. Um, it's in no way, you know, profound or relevant, but it definitely is what I would do. <laughs> I mean, it is one of those uh, things that there is so much so much storytelling around what happened at mm. that particular day that it'd be good to actually get somebody just to clear it up. Yeah. You know, like I, Auntie I Donna now have one political agenda. We're going <laughs> to, we're going to clear up this Ned Kelly myth once and for all guys. Yeah, he was no good. He seemed, he was a really grumpy guy. <laughs> Never meet your, yeah. He's a real grumpy. <laughs> Never meet your idols. That's the motto that you get out of this podcast. I met Ned Kelly. He's a, he had some very backwards opinions, even for 1880. Real dick, actually, mate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask him about X, Y, Z. it wasn't Z. political, but it felt real political, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was really saying something very clearly. <laughs> hey, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, um I'll have to get you back on another time and I'd love to get the other fellas on uh, the show as well uh, individually because, you know, philosophy, it can't be a... It's got to be a one-on-one experience. That is my one rule that I have remaining for this... for this show so it was lovely that uh you um chose to come on and i really appreciate it mate and i wish you all the best luck with the new netflix series out november the 11th around the world except for north korea and china 
Thank you so much, Will. And thanks so much for champion every, you know, so much commie in Australia. You're an absolute legend. Thank you so much. Yeah.